What's up everybody? This week we continue our discussion on pro wrestling in the 90s and look at the men who wore the big gold belt. That and a whole lot more is to come because maybe if he looked behind the sofa, he might have found his smile. Welcome to the show. I really shouldn't make jokes about people who potentially had depression, consider I'm suffering from depression myself. Uh, but, um, yeah, that was kind of a ridiculous moment in WWF history, which we will get to later on in the show. Hi, everybody. How you doing? Um, I just wanted to start this week by kind of clearing up some confusion. Um, on my part, um, basically, this is my show. This is my schedule, my whatever. And if I'm confused about what I'm doing, I can't expect you guys to understand because, yeah, I'm just all about it. So, um, I thought we were supposed to start the show on May 19th, and actually we were supposed to start on May 13th, but I told everybody May 6th. So, yeah. I, I, I apologize for all this. It is, it is it is a big cluster of everything, and, you know, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to dwell on it, and I just want to apologize for everybody who's expecting us a little earlier than what we dropped last week, as opposed to, um, you know, where we are now. So, again, my apologies, guys. You know, it's my fault the scheduling got mixed up, but um, I was always intending to start when I started, but I said we were starting something different, so that's my bad, that's my apologies. So, what has been happening since the last time I spoke with you? Well, I mentioned we did certain things in advance, and uh, during the last time I spoke with you, um, the legendary Arsenal FC manager, Arsene Wenger, has been fired, slash resigned, slash whatever. Um, it is a sad day it's going to be when uh, he has his final game uh, for a lot of Arsenal fans. Uh, some people think he deservedly should leave. I'm one of the the guys who thinks that it is time for him to leave. Uh, there are a bunch of people who uh, consider him the greatest coach Arsenal have ever had, and I agree with that too. And there are some guys who, you know, want to hold personal abuse at him, which I, 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 I can't buy into. I'm sorry. can't do that. Um, Arsene Wenger is a good... Arsene Wenger the man. That's what I'm going to miss the most about it. You know, 22 years at one football team is a long time. But it was the way he handled himself. He always took the criticism off his players, off the board, etc., etc. Um, he played some great football. At his best, he was invincible. At his worst, he was a cup semi. He was a European semi-finalist with finishing sixth in the Premier League. You know, a lot, a lot of young coaches would 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 kill for that. But, you know, over the years, the last couple of years, his time, his tactics have seemed outdated, his methods have seemed outdated, and he's, you know, the all clubs are one thing, but the Leicester season, I think, is the one that really, really, you know, killed killed off the vestige of him being a world-class coach anymore. That being said, Arsene Wenger is a great man. Uh, he, he brought class to English football. He brought intelligence. And that's what I'm going to miss the most. Because when he was hired, and even up until about five years ago, you know, there were still guys who would run around with cliches. There were still guys who, you know, would, would go to out, outdated, antiquated systems and so forth. And Wenger was seen as cutting edge up until about seven years ago. Uh but he was also an intelligent man, too. I mean, speaking several languages, he had a, a finance degree, you know. And he just, he just, there was something, there was an aura about him, a, a very, very silent charisma. You know, he was always calm. He, um, he did have his flaws as a person, but, I mean, 
as a person, you know, uh, I'm going to miss that part of it the most. It's kind of like watching your grandfather retire, you know. Um, so, merci, Arson. We are going to miss you here at the podcast, and good luck to wherever you end up. And for the next guy in the hot seat of Arsenal, I, I'll support you, just like anybody else will support you. Anybody with half a brain should support you. Also, talking of football, uh, for any Swansea City fans listening, I completely agree. Carlos out. Um, the performance last night was absolutely dreadful. You're fighting for your life, and that's the best that you can do. No, he, he, he's got to go. My advice would be, not just for the fan base, but for, you know, but for everybody associated with the club, get rid of all the guys on big wages, and build a spine of the team around the guys who were under 24. Use guys from the youth team, Ollie McBurney, uh, you know, don't sell Fabianski. Loan him out if you got to, but don't sell him. Because, you know, now you make a lot of money off Fabianski because Fabianski's proven he's he's a great keeper, but, you know, whatever. So, all football shenanigans aside, guys, if you like the podcast, if you like what you're listening to, give us a like on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, uh, look up Because Maybe Pod, look up Because Maybe Podcast.wordpress.com. We have a weekly blog that we update that's kind of tied into the episodes that we do. And if you're on YouTube, look up uh, Because Maybe Podcast. That way we have some sample episodes, some monologues, some extra episodes, and so on and so forth. Also, if you run a YouTube channel, podcast, small business, you have a band, an acting troupe, whatever, and you want to promote, not a problem. Give me a call. Actually, not give me a call. Shoot me an email, becausemaybepodcast at gmail.com. That way I can, uh, you know, give you a plug on the show. I've been plugging the Holodex. Um, great bunch of lads. If you get the chance to see them, go watch them. Seriously. And, uh, you know, all I ask in return, give me a plug back. That's it. That's all I ask. Um, but yeah, so with that in mind, we are going to look at part two of the fall and rise of pro wrestling in the 90s. It's kind of not the peak yet, but we definitely can see it from here, and this is definitely laid into where it was going to go, and there's a lot of juicy bits too. So guys, I hope you enjoy. Scenes of the 90s. All right, guys, we are back with part two of the fall and rise of pro wrestling and this begins the ascent i'm not going to dig too much into you know an introduction or anything we're just going to dive right into it and we're going to continue our story at wrestlemania 12 uh wrestlemania 12 took place in california at the airhead pond and it was the only wrestlemania to that point that only had uh one championship match on it um and it was the WWF title. It was Shawn Michaels versus Bret Hart. Now, that was unusual for the time because even though WWE has, like, you know, 12 championships now, I think, uh, they only had three. There was the World Championship, the IC Championship, and the Tag Championship. While the IC Champion was supposed to defend his belt, but he, he couldn't. I'll get to that here in a second. And the Tag Championship was in a tournament that was defended on the pre-show. So, um, yeah, you know, it was kind of kind of a weird time. Um, the Intercontinental Champion uh, was Goldust at the time. Uh, yes, Goldust in 1996. He's still around for all those who kind of fall off the thing. But that was uh, between Roddy Piper and Goldust. Goldust was supposed to defend the title against uh, Razor Ramon or Scott Hall in this match. And Hall was uh, suspended at the time. Uh, because of, of drug issues. So what they did is they put Roddy Piper in his place and um, they used footage of the O.J. Simpson uh, police chase 
to 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 uh, act like Roddy Piper was getting a police escort into the arena from the backlot street fight that they were having, and it was just so bizarre and so ridiculous. Even Jerry Lawler was like, uh, "This footage looks familiar, McMahon." You know, the whole the whole way through. That was one match. There was a match between uh, Kevin Nash's Diesel versus the Undertaker, but really, this event is known only for the Iron Man match between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. WWF was trying to push something new, and they were trying to push a new style of their product, and they took the two best workers in the company at the time, hands down. Um, and put them in a match together. For those of you who don't know, an Iron Man match is a match with a set time limit. So it doesn't matter how many times you pin your opponent. In fact, the, the goal is, is kind of like, you know, a soccer game, a basketball game, a football game, whatever. Whoever has the most points at the end of regulation time is the champion. Now, they also had um, a way of, you know, the way of calling it was nobody needs a fluke win over these two. And these two battled for like an hour. You know, it, it was an hour. It was an hour match. Um, it went to sudden death. And Shawn Michaels won the first of his world championships with the WWF. Now, this would kind of start leading up to Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels not liking each other. Um, but at this point, they were friends. They were, they, they were kind of close. And uh, they admit that the incident that... Uh, there's an incident that went around that Shawn Michaels told Bret to get the hell out of his ring. Right? And a lot of people are like, man, that's Shawn Michaels being disrespectful or anything. That's Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels playing the audience. Playing the guys in the back... Because that was planned between them. They, they've admitted as such. They did an interview a couple of years ago together. And they admitted that that was part of the part of the act. You know. Um, but that match was really a high point at the time for the WWF. Because it did have a lot of stuff going on that was negative. Stretching back about three or four weeks to about six or seven weeks after that. Um, in a tour of the Middle East. Uh, Big Van Vader who had jumped to the WWF was arrested for punching a reporter live on TV. Uh, there were stories of partying and drugs just all all the time. Uh, both Scott Hall and Sean Waltman were uh, suspended and went to rehab for drug use. And in fact, uh, Waltman was fired. Um, Hall was not fired because around about February that year, Hall uh, went to Kevin Nash, his buddy, and said, Don't tell anybody I'm jumping for WCW and walked away. And Hall cited the fact that he had low pay, he had a lot of things going on in his family, and he needed to earn more money. Um, he said that uh, after he left on his last night, Vince McMahon was begging him to stay, and Hall told him how much WCW had offered him, and McMahon went, ooh, yeah, I can't compete with that. So, you know, that's why he left. Um, Kevin Nash... Uh, would join Hall in leaving the company, but he had a slightly different approach to it. He wanted to stay, and he kind of used a couple of creative disagreements that they were having with him as a point of, you know what, that would potentially ruin me. Plus, the money that they were offering him was a little bit more than Scott Hall. So Nash went to Vince and said, this is what they're offering me, can you match it? I don't want to go, but I I've got to go. I, I need the money. So, Vince McMahon had lost two of his big stars, and what was kind of, the stars were aligned in the wrestling world, so to speak, because an event happened that coincided with Hall and Nash's contracts being up within two to three weeks, with the major catalysts of making pro wrestling good and hip and trendy in the 90s. Uh, so what happened is, for those of you who don't know, I mentioned the territory system last week. One of the things that they do in the territory system was that if I was to leave territory A to go to territory B, I would lose my last series of matches 
to my replacement. That way, he's in a position, and he takes my position in the card, and then I start afresh in a new organization. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of you, you lay down on your way out, and you, you know, you, you, you get your replacement to your position. And that, that was fine. Both Hall and Nash, you know, were old school enough to, to realize that was the case and had absolutely no problem with it. But their final show was at Madison Square Garden, which was the home base of WWF at the time. This is their home arena. And at the show, Kevin Nash, who was a bad guy, was fighting Shawn Michaels for the championship. Shawn was a good guy. Scott Hall, a good guy, was fighting Triple H, a bad guy. At the end of the night, Michaels, Hall, Nash, and Triple H were all in the ring together, hugging, high-fiving, raising hands, etc., etc., etc. Now... Nowadays, we know the guys' real names, what they're doing, you know, because of social media and the internet and so on and so forth, but that was considered sacrilegious back in 1996. They went back to the, to the locker room, and, like, all the veterans were angry baying for blood, and Vince McMahon had the look of thunder on his place. Now, Nash Hall, Michaels, and Triple H claimed that they had approval from Vince McMahon that they could go out there and do something. And McMahon did admit that, you know, he, 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 he was going to allow them to do something. But this was the problem. I'm a parent. There are times where I'll sit down after work and one of my kids will come up to me and say, um, are we going to McDonald's? And I say, no, what, why would we go to McDonald's? He said, oh, well, you said yesterday we were going to McDonald's. And I'm casting my mind back to a conversation that I, that, that I was having with somebody else in the house. And, you know, the question got asked and I didn't answer it. And I went, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Shoot, not a problem. Just offhandedly saying it. And now it's cost me 50 bucks in fast food. Right. So that's kind of what that's kind of what Vince McMahon said happened. He was half paying attention. I didn't realize exactly what they were going to do. And boom, that was it. You know, um, the way WWF reacted was all the punishment fell on Triple H. Uh, Nation Hall, gone. They had no they couldn't punish them. They were out of contract. Uh, Michaels was the champion, and they just spent basically two years building him up to be the, uh, you know, old-fashioned champion. So somebody had to take the fall, and that was Triple H. And he lost his uh, winning King of the Ring spot, which was a big deal back in 96, to Steve Austin. So, you have the curtain call, Nation Hall have left, Austin's going to win King of the Ring. It's that two to three weeks of each other, and Austin winning King of the Ring that changed the business forever. You don't believe me? Well, what happened next? What happened after Nation Hall left? Well, May 26, 96, Scott Hall shows up on WCW Monday Nitro, through the crowd, in street clothes, stops a match, and addresses the world. He delivers, a, he delivers the, the infamous, you want to go to war promo, and promises a big surprise, and that he's not alone. The next uh, couple of hours, you know, he, he pops up in and out with security around him and, and he's saying he's got big planes coming and, and stuff's happening. That was week one. Week two, he, he did the same thing and kind of the, the, the announcers were like, I, I, there's something up because this, is, this isn't right. And, and you know what? He's, he's not. He's not coming through. No, 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 no. And on week three, Nash shows up. And at that point, everybody was like, whoa, you know. And at the time, you know. The fans who weren't inside to the business didn't know what was going on because they never addressed Hall and Nash by name, gimmick, or anything like that. They were just outsiders. And WWF actually sued WCW because of this. Not, well, kind of out of pettiness, but uh, <laughs> it's very, very simple. They were like, look, they're acting like Razor Ramon and Diesel. Those are our characters. Stop it. 
And at the time, those who were in the know knew that Nash and Hall weren't officially signed to WCW. Uh, Kevin Nash has come out in interviews and said that they were working off uh, deal memos, which, for those of you who don't know, and I didn't know at the time, a deal memo is kind of like a non-binding pre-contract that is, that is assumed. So, like, if, if I signed a deal memo that said, uh, I'm going to work for you for 50 grand a year, and you were going to provide me with health insurance, and I'm going to show up for 10-hour days, that's what we agree to when the contract is, um, you know, written up. That's the terms that we agree to, but I get started working straight away, and, you know, they pay me and everything like that. But the difference was is that Nation Hall had uh, out clauses, meaning that WCW were bound by their end if National Hall agreed to go to WCW, but National Hall could back out at any moment. So WWF could have, like, you know, paid National Hall what they wanted in 96, and they didn't make the jump. Uh, so WWF, like I said, sued, and uh, implied that Hall and Nash were coming back. Jim Ross went on TV, he was the uh, commentator, and he was uh, part of the backroom staff at the time, uh, said that he was bringing them back, and WCW panicked and offered them $400,000 extra to sign on. National Hall had no intention of going back at that point. They signed the contracts right there, took a limo home. The next night, two guys walk out, Rick Bogner and Glenn Jacobs, who would later become Kane. And WCW's office was looking around going, we've just spent close to a million dollars of Ted's money trying to, you know, <laughs> trying to sign two guys that they'd already signed. So what did that mean in real terms, though? Well, you know, the angle was the angle was going good. Hall and Nash, you know, were coming out there, and the audience was buying into it, and WCW was trying to run them off, and then Bash at the Beach happened. Uh, Hall and Nash show up without their partner, and they fight Sting, Randy Savage, and Lex Luger. And during the match, I can't remember if it was Luger or, or Sting who got injured. Savage was laying down. Hulk Hogan storms the ring, delivers a leg drop to Randy Savage, and becomes the third man in WCW. He then uh, cut a promo. Ring was filled with garbage, saying how he was tired of being booed. Uh, these two guys came from an organization up north, and who knows more about that organization than me, brother? You know. And Hogan was just sick and tired of the politics that were in WCW from the fan base. See, in WWF, Hulk Hogan was like, you know, cheered as a god. But when he went to WCW, you know, the old-timey fans that was the old Jim Crockett Promotions crowd, they rejected him. You know, they 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 didn't want to do his brother stick anymore. You know, it was it it was tired, and you know, Hogan was perceived as a guy who can't wrestle. Um, he kind of can't. He's not one of the elite guys, but his matches in Japan were good. You know, they they, they had nothing for him, and a WCW booker Kevin Sullivan kind of knew this and made a stable of of guys that was so over the top and so bad and so outlandish that he thought that the people would start cheering Hogan. These guys were known as the Dungeon of Doom. Well, they booed the Dungeon of Doom at the building, but they also booed Hogan, too. I mean, you got to understand, this Dungeon of Doom angle was, was terrible, okay? You had uh, the matches stunk, which was uh, against the hallmark of what WCW was. Uh, you had Brutus Beefcake, a mid-card guy in WWF at best, main event in Starcade. Now, for those of you kind of wondering what that is, that's like Titus O'Neil main event in WrestleMania against Brock Lesnar, you know? Um, I mean, and then you had all these guys who couldn't wrestle from Hogan's past showing up. You had, you know, Earthquake, Brutus Beefcake, um, Zeus, 
you know, all these guys just coming. Uh, the Yeti. Uh, for those of you who don't know what the Yeti is, just Google the Yeti Davy WCW, and you'll see why nobody does a double team bear hug. Um, <laughs> and then you had Paul White, the Giant, aka the Big Show. He fell off the top of Cobo Hall, and then showed up five minutes later without a scratch on him. I mean, it was just bad, 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 bad. And the NWO is what Hogan dubbed them, and it kind of turned. Basically, Hogan Hall and Nash's careers on the head and set the bar for WCW to win 80 weeks in a row of a ratings war. You know? I mean, that, that, that that's big regardless of how, of how you want to look at it. And, you know, you, you, you can't argue with that kind of thing. You really can't. But that was the big leagues. What were the minor leagues doing? Um, I don't want to say ECW was minor league, but it wasn't on the level of WWF and WCW at that point. Um, at this time, Smoky Mountain Wrestling, who was the the, 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 the kind of rounded out the four big promotions in the United States, they'd close their doors. Uh, Jim Cornette was now working uh, full-time with WWF as an on-screen performer and a backstage producer or road agent or creative member or coffee boy or something. Um, Jim Connett's awesome, he, he, he's, you know, as far as a, a wrestling mind, a wrestling worker goes, he's fantastic, uh, he wore many, many hats, and at the time, you know, he, he tried running his own promotion, it didn't quite work out, and, you know, at this time, he's working for WWF full-time, but ECW, however, with Paul Heyman, the other mad genius of wrestling, is continuing their slow rise to the top, um, they'd run four shows a month in, in the same building, you know, and, and make like hours and hours of TV and sell merchandise and so on and so forth. I mean, ECW was known as a haven for hardcore wrestlers and hardcore wrestling, and it did have that, but it also had uh, established guys who needed an edge or up-and-comers that the majority of American wrestling fans didn't know. And between 1994 and 1996, WCW, uh, not WCW, excuse me, ECW's roster contained Chris Jericho, Dean Malenko, Eddie Guerrero, Rey Mysterio, Al Snow, Perry Satin, Steve Austin, Brian Pillman, Mick Foley. That's a huge who's who of, you know, of guys who would become important to the business either in the late 90s or early 2000s. So it's with that in mind that ECW is the land of misfit toys, an underage fan called Eric Kulis, I think that's his name, I apologize if I get it wrong, I'm just going to refer to him as Eric from this point forward, <laughs> Eric manages to get himself backstage in a tryout as Mass Transit, kind of a, uh, a, a take on, you know, an overzealous um, public transport worker, uh, however, he was underage, uh, he said that he was 22 years old, he was actually 17, now, I have a 17-year-old, and I know a 22-year-old. How could you t think a 17-year-old was 22? Well, Kulis was 6'4", 350 pounds, and everybody just bought it. I mean, if you see a 6'4", 350-pound teenager walking up to you, you're not going to assume he's automatically a teenager. You could assume that he's 22, 23, 24. Um, he lied about his experience, stating that he was trained by legendary wrestler, wrestler Killer Kowalski. Uh, Kowalski trained the likes of Triple H and uh, Albert, if for modern fans, or, or Jason Bloom, as he's called in, um, you know, Coach Bloom in NXT, and he also had his uh, credentials endorsed by a popular midget wrestler who was friends of the family. So with all that in mind, Paul Heyman was like, heck yeah, you know, come ahead, have, have a match. Well, what are you going to use me with? Well, Axel Rotten, who was supposed to partner with Devon Dudley, had not shown up that night, so we need you in a tag match with the Gangsters. Now, for those of you who don't know much about ECW and don't know much about the gangsters, New Jack is a guy who has a reputation of being ultra-violent in the ring. He'd be known to unnecessarily hurt newcomers and 
and and you know just mercilessly hurt newcomers mercilessly hurt veterans um he didn't give a dang what he thought he had a tremendous cocaine habit uh he was a bounty hunter with several justified homicides you know he he was with without pissing anybody off and, and without insulting him at the time he seemed like he was a few sticks short of a bundle and um what Kulas did is he approached New Jack before the match. Now, New Jack was already ticked off that he's got to be in a match with this rookie. And then this rookie comes up to him and asks for a couple of requests. In the world of wrestling, that is a complete no-no. You respect your veterans and you don't beg them for spots in a match. Uh, he asked to get a couple of moves in and he wanted to know if Jack would cut him open. Sure, Jack volunteered to do it. Took a bunch of cocaine before the match because he was so angry and he wanted to be even angrier when he did it. So the match starts, Devon Dudley is isolated, and New Jack just goes to work on this kid. Uh, just brutalizes him with chairs, toasters, crutches, signs, just beats the living crap out of him. Then severs two arteries in his head with a surgical scalpel. Uh, his dad can be heard screaming on the recording, because there is a recording of this, to show mercy that he's only 17 years old. And, you know, he's taken out in a bloody heap, uh, there's blood everywhere, New Jack cussing him out on the mic as he's going and the Cuteless family rightly sued ECW but also rightly lost um, it was proven in court that Cuteless had lied and his father put him in, in the position that he was and also proved that Cuteless had said look you know I want you to cut me and they explained see this is the thing most people don't know is a wrestler will take a small razor blade and put a slice in his head to bleed and that's what Cuteless wanted to do now New Jack went a little too far but he said, but basically it was, hey, he wanted me to cut him. I cut him. I'm sorry I got the wrong spot. Uh, ECW lost sponsors, lost his pay-per-view deal, um, and, you know, had to tone down a little bit and was heavily scrutinized and lost a lot of business for, for, for a little while and kind of delayed their, their jump to the top. Uh, unfortunately, this story doesn't have a happy ending because Eric Kulas died at age 22 uh, due to complications of gastric bypass surgery. Um, you know. But I'll say this, if I was a professional wrestler and I saw my name across New Jack, you'd never see my fat ass again. So, uh, <laughs> um, you know, but um, yeah, just a horrible, horrible, brutal incident that um, I don't recommend anybody watches. So if you do watch, discretion is advised. Uh, so that's kind of what was going on in ECW at that point. Um, in WWF, we're going to go back to WWF, um, as I mentioned, Triple H was supposed to win the King of the Ring tournament, but due to the curtain call incident, his spot was given to Steve Austin. Um, Austin uh, had a, con not a concussion, but he ha had to have stitches or staples that night during the tournament. Uh, for those of you who don't know, King of the Ring was a one-night tournament, and the winner would usually become the unofficial number one contender for the world title. So Austin... Second match, busted open. He's got like 45 minutes to get out of the arena, get stitched up, and get back back in. And during the night, he heard Jake, Roma, Jake Roberts, excuse me, Jake the Snake was his opponent, and Jake Roberts was a born-again Christian at this point. And Roberts basically cut a promo saying that the Lord was on his side and he would he would win, you know, and, and citing his faith and citing, you know, how, how divine intervention would take it, blah, 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 blah. Well, Roberts lost. It was a good match. Uh, Austin won. And Austin got up, got on the stage for his coronation. Now he refused the crown, the scepter, and the uh, and the cape, but started talking, saying, "I'll take on anybody, you know, the world title." I said, "I don't care. I just I'll take on anybody." Um, 
get Jake Roberts out of the ring, he's a piece of crap. And then he said, you know, Roberts wants to talk about his Psalms, John 3.16, while Austin 3.16 says, I just whooped your ass. And the audience was stunned because of the slightly blasphemous nature of it, but then thought it was one of the coolest things ever. Uh, T-shirts were made almost instantly with the legend of Austin 316 on it, and it became mainstream. The Austin 316 t-shirt, the original t-shirt, was the largest selling piece of wrestling merchandise in the history of professional wrestling. Um, Austin would slowly creep up the cloud after this point. Nothing, you know, nothing like, you know, he didn't rock it up there or anything like that. But, um, yeah, that was a heck of a start for his character, who was, you know, who had a rough time when he started at the beginning of the year. So, what did Austin do after winning King of the Ring? Well, the first thing he did was, uh, wrestle against his former tag team partner, Flying Brian Pillman. Now, Austin and Pillman were a great tag team at WCW known as the Hollywood Blondes, and they had great chemistry together, they had great tag team chemistry together, they had great personal chemistry together, and it was just a, a great team. Well, when they split up, they never really feuded, and then Austin and Pillman both left the company not long after that. Uh, Pillman, however, was in the middle of what he called the loose cannon gimmick. The way it worked is he concocted a, an idea with the booker of whatever organization he was in that he would be off the chart and that he legitimately snapped. And it fooled the guys, it fooled the fans. Um, Vince McMahon, Eric Bischoff, Paul Heyman, the three main bookers of the time, knew exactly what was going on and encouraged the behavior. Now, Vince McMahon did have some... Um, checks on it because he's Vince McMahon and it's his creative product but at the end of the day Brian Pillman was bouncing around between promotions to uh you know to this loose cannon and so Steve Austin shows up at Pillman's house because Pillman uh, has got a broken ankle uh Austin shows up at his house and Pillman gets a gun as he reaches for the trigger bang TV fades to black and you have to go through commercials and then you see Austin kind of slumped over but he hasn't been shot he's just had his, you know, he's just been whooped by Pillman's friends, and a lot of people took offense to this, that was a very, very tough angle to watch, and WWF almost lost his TV deal because of this, um, strangely enough, one of the most important incidences, the, the unofficial kickoff of the Attitude Era, most people think, and WWF almost lost his TV deal because of this, because it was a huge, scandalous thing, um, Austin would kind of move sideways and start, uh, feeding with the rest of Pillman's friends in the WWF, which included the Hart Foundation, but, um, yeah, this incident is not mentioned after that fact, and quite rightly so, as, as, as it is. So WCW, with the NWO angle in full force and, and full, um, regalia, is kind of dominating the TV ratings at this point. They've tapped into this idea of an anti-authority, uh, bad guy, and the crowds are eating it up. The NWO t-shirt is selling just as much as the Austin t-shirt for a while at least. Um, the feud between the NWO and the WCW hierarchies, it dominates the TVs. Dominates every show. Uh, NWO guys would wrestle in in empty arena matches and send footage in, you know, to, to keep the illusion that they were two separate organizations. Um, the problem with the NWO angle is it got bloated very, very quickly. And a lot of people were just thrown in the NWO just for the sake of it, instead of it being a core group of guys. But the mid-card of WCW was what was getting people's attention. Uh, they had young technical wrestlers. They had veteran technical wrestlers. They brought in guys from Japan. They brought in guys from Mexico. You know, kind of similar to what um, 
ECW did, but on a larger scale. They raided ECW for a lot of talent. Talent like Raven, The Sandman, Public Enemy, Perry Satin, you know. Um, just kind of ramped it up. And WCW would win 80 plus weeks in a row. I think it was either 86 or 84. And WWF is panicking at this point. They have no idea what to do. I mean, they have no idea what to do. They, 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 they have no... They have nothing. They have absolutely nothing. It doesn't help that Shawn Michaels as champion isn't drawing and he's starting to get booed out of buildings too. So what's the alternative? Sid. Look, I like Sid. Sid's a good wrestler, but I never struck him as world championship material at a major organization for an extended period of time. Maybe a transitional guy, but definitely not the guy. Kind of like Tito Santana, you know. Um... Eddie Guerrero, um, you know, just these guys who, who were great, but I, I can't picture them at the top, you know, now people did, but, but for me personally, it wasn't, you know, and so WWF tried to do things with ECW at that point, now ECW is suffering from its own thing after the mass transit incident, you know, Paul Heyman admits that ECW is starting to see as too much, they've crossed the line, um, over the last couple of years, they've had chairs thrown in the ring, they've had, um, a man set another man on fire. They've had a stripping incident where they had a woman strip in the arena while the power went off, while they were fixing the power. Um, and a crucifixion angle. Yes, crucifixion angle. Um, Kurt Angle, ironically, was in the building at that night because, you know, he was looking to get into pro wrestling. And he comes out, high five, you know, shakes hands, kiss babies, all that nonsense. And... He sees this crucifixion thing going down, and he said, you know what, if my name is mentioned on your TV program, I will sue. And, you know, Paul Heyman was upset, kind of, not really, but, you know, because he, he, he wanted Kurt Angle in the organization that had some legitimacy to it. But the pay-per-view providers have, have had enough, and Heyman pulled in a lot of favors, he did a lot of begging and pleading, and in the end, he agreed to a later start time, a higher rating than usual, and they would tone down the blood and the violence... And they kind of did. They toned it down enough for what ECW was. And, you know, they they were back on the air. And instead of being in 96, it was in mid-97, April 97, I should say. And, you know, the, the, the sh Paul Heyman gives a legendary speech that kind of rouses the guys up and gets them to work in, you know, gets them to work in harder than they probably ever would have if they hadn't done it. Now, ECW, as I mentioned, has got these young up-and-comers, and they do have a couple of veterans come back, too. And legendary wrestler Terry Funk wrestles two matches in a row. One is a ladder match, one is a traditional ECW match to win the world title. The iconic shot of Terry Funk in a blood-stained white t-shirt with Funky written on it, holding the title belt above his head, is, is fantastic. The show is considered a masterpiece. Critics and wrestlers alike think it's one of the greatest shows that, that was definitely done in the 90s. But it was always in trouble. And thankfully, it, it didn't... <sighs> It didn't have the trouble that they were expecting. And what I mean by that is I mentioned earlier that uh, they had a stripper when a power outage happened. 30 seconds after the show went off the air, the, tran the, the Transformer blew and knocked out the power to the, to the building. If, they'd have, uh, if that had happened an hour earlier, it would have killed the show dead before the main event, which, you know, 
So, that's what WWF wanted to bring into their fold. They wanted to bring young, hungry guys. Because, unfortunately, the World Championship scene was a shambles at the beginning of 1997. You had Vader, The Undertaker, Sid, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, and Steve Austin sniffing around. On paper, that is a phenomenal scene. But, however, farcical booking had led to it becoming pretty much a joke. Uh, Shawn Michaels basically handed the belt to Vince McMahon on a special episode of Monday Night Raw and said that that he lost his smile and that he was retiring because he lost his smile. Now, let's get let's do a little bit of storytelling first and then I'll come back to that. So after the Iron Man match at WrestleMania 12, Bret Hart took some time off returning Survivor Series later that year. During that time, his contract was up and he almost signed with WCW and decided to stay to the WWF because he had enormous loyalty. Uh, he signed a 20-year contract and that 20-year contract would basically guarantee him income for life. Uh, him and Shawn Michaels was to have a rematch at WrestleMania 13 where Bret would win, and because of Shawn losing his smile, Bret took that as a slap in the face and personal. Now, Michaels claims that he was suffering from a legitimate knee injury, and Michaels did have problems with his knees at the time. Uh, but more importantly, I think, as somebody who suffers from depression themselves, uh, himself, Michaels was claiming that he had a, a form of depression and he just he couldn't go anymore and he was apathetic. Which, on the one hand, I understand. If your house is not into your job and your job is to entertain people, you don't want to be out there entertaining people. Trust me, I know that. I know that personally. You know, trying to do this podcast with depression has kicked my behind sometimes. But, um... Basically, but even today, Michael's harshest critics will claim that he didn't want to lose to Brett, and so he just handed the belt over and, you know, to weasel his way out of it. On the one hand, I can understand that, because Michael's did have reputations about stuff like that. But uh, Brett Hart took it personally, and that's what kind of led to their hatred to it. They, they were kind of irritated with each other when Brett came back. Michael's was of the opinion that Brett, you know, had abandoned the WWF while the company fell on his shoulders, and, and so on and so forth. So what happened is there was kind of like a four-man feud between Sid, The Undertaker, Bret Hart, and Steve Austin. And Bret Hart ended up fighting Steve Austin in WrestleMania 13 in a submission match. Now, during the match, Bret Hart's uh, goody-two-shoes attitude had finally got the crowd sick and tired. Remember, ECW's coming on with cool people, NWO has got the cool bad guy, and Bret Hart's still talking about being the excellence of execution, um, and, and, you know, wanting to do this for the kids, and being right and moral, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, Austin was this cool, bad, cool anti-authoritative bad guy that the fans were starting to lap up. And during the match... Fans turned on Brett and embraced Austin. And Brett became the number one bad guy from the number one good guy, and Austin became the number one good guy from the number one bad guy. And there's an iconic shot in this match of Steve Austin in the sharpshooter, blood pouring down his face, just not giving up. And at the end of the match, Bret Hart, you know, beat him up when he was knocked unconscious, and bang, he's a scumbag. The match is considered, you know, the the turning point for, uh, the match is an instant classic for a start. And it's also considered a turning point in for WWF fans as to where their product was going at the time. Because, yeah, you had some things like Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels with great technical appeal. But this match was an old-fashioned wrestling brawl that featured good wrestling, good storytelling, and fighting. Lots and lots of fighting. Uh, Jim Cornette, for example, states that it is the closest thing the WWF had done to a, an NWA uh, wrestling match classic. And with that going on, WCW was still trying to put the NWO angle over. And it was it was still there. It'd been run almost a year at this point, with no end in sight, and no reason why there's an end in sight. And the pay-per-views up to that point that WCW were promoting were kind of lackluster, for lack of a better term. The TV product was great, but the but the pay-per-views were kind of, of lackluster. 
And that was because, you know, um, the undercard matches that they had. WCW had a great mid-card in the 90s. Oh, my God. Like I mentioned, Jericho, Guerrero, Malenko, Satin, Raven, Regal, Finley, um, tag teams, cruiserweights. Just, you know, they were all putting on high-quality, high-quality, high-quality matches. But the draws, the main event guys, they were still recycling WWF guys from the 1980s. In 1997, Hulk Hogan would fight Roddy Piper. Kevin Nash and Scott Hall would fight Ric Flair and Roddy Piper. Um, In 1998, a year and a half later, Hulk Hogan fought the Ultimate Warrior. I mean... You know, it, it's it's. Uh, I, I they were trying to get by on the named guys without pushing their young talent, and that kind of bit them in the rear end, as I mentioned last week. But you know, uh, I mean, there was like there was things like the NWO sold out pay per view that's considered a flop. Uh, Nash himself states that the location and the booking of the gig is the reason that was. Um, he said, with all due respect to Cedar Rapids, you know, that event should have taken place in somewhere like Vegas or New Orleans or New York or somewhere cool, with all due respect to Cedar Rapids. And then you had uh, the spring break shows in Florida where the guys were just there to party and not work, you know, do not go in the pool. You might as well have told everybody to go in the pool because everybody jumped in the pool. Uh, and then you had the Sturgis shows, uh, the Hog Wild shows, the bunch of biker guys who did not want wrestling there, throwing rocks at everybody. Um, Dressing rooms weren't trailers, they were storage containers with plastic chairs, and alleged racism was thrown at Harlem Heat and any other black wrestler that was there. You know, um, just... They still had a great TV show, and they still had a great undercard, but but some of their planning just didn't quite work. With all this going on, WWF decides, you know what, let's work with the smaller promotions. They worked with the Memphis Territory that was still there. They worked with ECW. They worked with the remnants of the NWA. They worked with Japanese promotions, British promotions, and uh, Mexican promotions. Uh, they do matches on Monday Night Raw. They do matches on pay-per-views. And it kind of put a little bit of interest, especially the WWF versus ECW angle. That was a really, really good angle. But, you know, it still wasn't enough to, to, to break what was happening. And, you know, it was, it, was, it was a hard thing for them to, to do. But WWF would have problems of its own. Uh, we move into, like, October time. Uh, the summer had gone on without incident for both companies. Nothing, nothing major. I mean, look, a lot of things happened, like, you know, Shawn Michaels t- turning a bad guy and everything like that. But, I mean, nothing, nothing outside of what was normal in professional wrestling. That's one of the things that, I'm, uh, that I, that I want to get over is, you know, this isn't the normal stuff that happened in wrestling. This is the stuff that made it the way it was. So there are going to be some instances people say, well, why did you talk about this? Because really it's not important. Shawn Michaels turns heel on The Undertaker is not important as opposed to WCW crapping all over their product, you know? Um, so with that in mind, sorry about that. Slight tangent. Let's go back to what we were talking about. Uh, we got a Bad Blood 1997. And it's a show remembered for two things. One of them a tragedy and one of them a triumph. So, uh, basically put, before the show, Brian Pillman was found dead. Uh, he had an un- undetected heart condition. Uh, the same thing that killed his father. And he had a heart attack. Um, a lot of the guys were upset. A lot of the guys were sad. Uh, but they decided the show must go on. A lot of guys worked their matches as tribute to uh, Brian Pillman. Um, however, the reason this is a, such a bad, bad thing is not the fact that the show went on because the guy didn't die at the event. And believe me, we'll get onto that next week because there is something that happens for those of you who do know. Um, Vince McMahon 
is not acknowledged as the owner of the WWF at this point, but the people in the know know he's the boss. And running the show got a little bit of criticism, but it was it was an understandable why they did it, but still criticized kind of thing. He had Melanie Pillman on the show doing an interview just hours after her husband had died. And McMahon makes real, real weird comments about her future and how she how she can provide for her family now that Brian's dead. And so it is horrible to watch. I mean, the mass transit incident is hard to watch because of its violence. This is just hard to watch because of decency. It's very, very awkward. It's very, very contrived. And I have no idea what Vince McMahon was thinking while he did this. Probably wasn't thinking. Probably wanted to, to assert some dominance over, over somebody, pal. But... It, <sighs> It was, it was hard. It left a real, real bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. Especially the guys in the back, you know. Because uh, Brian Pillman is seen as a legend in the eyes of the fans. And he's seen as a legend in the eyes of the wrestlers. You know, everybody says there are a handful of people who... Um, Scott Hall, Roddy Piper, Kurt Hanning, Rick Rude, Brian Pillman. As the top guys to never win a world championship. Back when that meant something. Because I know, I'm, I'm not trying to trying to make it you know sound real, real bad, but with, like, um, world championship reigns in WCW in the 2000s, there was, like, 20 different reigns in one year, which was more than half, which was basically almost half of what was over the last decade, you know. Um, and just, just, there'd be multiple world championships. Pillman is one of those guys who, you know, was one of the greatest to never hold a world championship. So, but the night well, the night might have been horrible for the Pillman family and horrible for Pillman's fans. But you know the show did go off without a hitch. Um, the main event was a Hell in a Cell match. The very first Hell in a Cell match. Uh, it's where a steel cage would surround the ring area, not the ring, and it had a roof. And it was basically a number one contenders match for the WWF title. Uh, there's a couple of things that, that that have been happening at this point, you know, that 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 make this important. Uh, Michaels was the leader of DX at this point. Him and Triple H, best friends, started acting childish and anti-establishment on TV. Um, that was kind of a, an effect of the Pillman death, and in the in the run-up to that event, because Vince McMahon was like, you know, maybe some of the ideas have passed us by, and maybe you know you guys need to work on your own stick. And they did, you know, and that's why a lot of guys started, you know, that's why WWF exploded later on. But, uh, you know, he, he's childish, he's disrespectful, I mean, he's simulated oral sex in the hallway, um, you know, he's telling Surgeon Slaughter to suck it, and and USA is, is, is not a fan of this stuff, and pretty much tells WWF, knock it off or we'll cancel you, and Michaels and Helmsley didn't care, and just carried on. Now, as far as his opponent for that night, The Undertaker was uh, looking for revenge because Shawn Michaels cost him the WWF title. Um, but during this time, he was also in a rivalry with Paul Bearer, who claimed that The Undertaker had a brother who was disfigured in a fire that The Undertaker started. So a little soap opera-esque, I understand, I admit that. Uh, Taker admitted starting the fire, but it said that his brother was dead. While during the match, out comes Kane. And this is an iconic moment of WWF where Kane walks to the ring, rips the door off its hinges like it's nothing, and beats The Undertaker down. Nobody had done that before. And, and Shawn Michaels won. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because the debut of Kane is considered perhaps the greatest debut in the history of wrestling. Um, Glenn Jacobs, who was fake Diesel, and before that was Isaac Yankum DDS, as I mentioned last week, the dentist gimmick. Um, he was a journeyman who 
had all the potential in the world. Everybody saw something inside him. Vince McMahon saw something inside of him. Jim Cornette loved the guy. And he just needed a gimmick that, that would work. So by covering his whole body and his face, you know, he became basically one of the top guys in the company overnight. Um, now, the, the, uh, the there were a smattering of fans who knew who he was and, and, and everything like that. But his debut is still perhaps the best in the history of, of wrestling, you know, for, for the impact that it had and, you know, for the impact that it had and, and, and how it changed the direction of a character who at that point was starting to go stale. I mean, The Undertaker was a great character, don't get me wrong, but it was starting to, he needed an edge. And the fact that he was an arsonist who killed his family and almost killed his brother, that that's an edge to have, you know. But um, all this would lead up to Survivor Series 1997. Now, disclaimer, I'm currently at around about 40 minutes right here. This could have its own episode. So I will be as brief as possible in outlining what happened with the Montreal Screwjob. Okay, because it was a it, it was the event that launched WWF into the next stratosphere, and one of the events that actually started putting nails in WCW's coffin, if you can believe that. So just you know, bear with me because this is this going to this is a lot of information. It's going to take a lot of time to uh, to deal with it. So uh, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, because of the end of the Hell in the Cell match, was supposed to meet for the WWF Championship. At this point, after their playful little get out of my ring. A year and a half earlier, Brett and Sean were hitting each other. They absolutely detested each other at this point. Uh, Brett was upset with Shawn Michaels because he implied that uh, Brett had a lot of, quote, sunny days, meaning that he was having an affair with uh, Sonny, which was funny because Shawn Michaels was the one having the affair. Uh, Brett was not comfortable about the direction of the product and the more adult-oriented nature, and the fact that Vince McMahon made Shawn Michaels the number one bad guy when Brett was supposed to be the number one bad guy. Uh, Sean was upset that Brett was acting childish backstage. Uh, both men had said that they would refuse to lose to the other one at some point, even though at some point they also said they, w- they would. And Sean said to get his bad guy character over and to make the, uh, the, the, the Hunt family loved even more in Europe, he would beat the undefeated in Europe British Bulldog for the European title. That angered Brett. It angered the Bulldog, too. And, and to be fair, it angered a lot of fans, too. Because, I mean, Europe was the British Bulldog's backyard. It was his home homeland. They didn't go there that often. Bulldog is still the greatest British professional wrestler in WWF history, WWE history. I don't care what anybody says. So there was that between them. They had a real-life fight in the dressing room where Brett yanked a clump out of Shawn Michaels' hair that Jim Cornette apparently owns. Uh, <laughs> which is... which I wish I was making that up. Um... Sean cited unsafe working conditions and stormed out, and it was just two guys being petty and childish at this point. Uh, Brett, on the other hand, was having problems with Vince McMahon as well, because with WCW kicking WWF's behind in the ratings, Vince couldn't pay Brett his 20-year contract. Now, to be fair to Vince McMahon, he asked Brett to defer some payments to get them over the financial period. Any businessman would do that. Any boss would do that. I have no fault in that. But Brett refused. Which Brett also had a right to do. So what happened is Vince said, okay, we either have to renegotiate our contract or you can renegotiate with WCW. So Brett ended up signing a three-year deal with WCW. However, that was between the Monday Night Raw and the Sunday Pay-Per-View where Brett signed the WCW contract. So 
pretty much Vince said, Brett, I want you to lose to Shawn Michaels in Montreal, which, as I mentioned earlier, was the time on a tradition. And Brett said, no, I have a little bit of creative control on my uh, contract. I'll lose in Detroit. I'll lose, I'll lose to nobody in Canada, and I will not lose to Shawn Michaels, period. So, Shawn Michaels, Gerald Briscoe, Jim Ross, Pat Patterson, Vince McMahon, um, Jim Cornette, Vince Russo, they all kind of bounced around ideas as to how to get the title off Brett or how to end this match without WCW being able to say that their champ- that WWS champion was leaving. So, um, now, I'm not saying that Briscoe, Patterson, Ross, uh, Cornette, Russo, Slaughter, etc. were in on the thing. But in the booking meetings, they were throwing every idea they could at it. And it transpired that Vince McMahon had, with a couple of other people, uh, told Brett that this is what was going to happen. We're going to put you in the sharpshooter. Uh, Owen and Davey would come down, destroy the match. Triple H would come down, no DQ finish, but you would stand tall at the end of the night. Brett agreed to that, uh, but he did have a little bit in, in the back of his mind, you know, because he was the son of the legendary Stu Hart, who was a promoter, and so he went to the referee and said, on your children's life, you won't screw me out there. No, I won't do that, Brett. Of course I won't. So, Brett was put in the sharpshooter, and the ref called for the bell. Brett had lost his title, and confusion reigned, and Brett Hart and Shawn Michaels both got up, looking at what the hell was going on, and... Brett realized that Vince had duped him, sped on him, destroyed all his equipment at ringside. Uh, basically, lock, the, the, the office guys locked themselves in an office and waited for Brett to calm down. Um, Brett, Vince went backstage, tried to talk to Brett, tried to tell him what was going on. Uh, listening to a lot of accounts, some people say Vince McMahon went in there to explain himself. Some say he went to gloat. And others actually say, quite honestly, that Vince went up there knowing that Brett was going to be out of him. Which Brett did. He gave him an uppercut so bad that Vince got a black eye and rolled his ankle. Well, in the aftermath of that, um, Rick Rude, who was not working on a contract, walked. The British Bulldog, David Boy Smith, Jim Neidhart, they quit on the spot and joined uh, Bret Hart and WCW. Owen Hart was uh, given several weeks off, but was not granted a release. Uh, Mick Foley and several others did not show up the next night in protest of a promoter messing with one of the boys, in the words of Jim Cornette. And... You know, it was just a big, big, ugly mess. Uh, Bret Hart didn't do anything for the WWF until after his stroke in 2002. And to, to be honest, him and Shawn Michaels and Vince McMahon have all made amends. And, you know, everybody's fine now. But that, that event did kind of suck the passion out of, of, of Bret. And his run in WCW was not considered a success, uh, even up until his retirement. And the irony of it is, is several months later, Sean would also also be out of action too. So this kind of served nobody except Vince McMahon and the WWF, and completely screwed over one guy, while completely putting a target on the back of another guy. Now, there are misconceptions and theories about the incident. Uh, one of the things was that uh, Brett's contract was supposed to uh, expire the next night. Uh, but that wasn't true. Brett had another five or six weeks on his contract left at that point, but at that point, WCW could say, hey, we just signed their champion. Uh, Brett has has admitted, and Sean's agreed, that Brett was not going to lose in Canada, but he would have lost anywhere else in the world to anybody else in the world. So Jim Connett said, throw Shamrock at him, throw Foley at him, throw Austin at him, throw somebody, let's just get the belt off him. 
Um, the idea that it was Shawn... The idea wasn't Shawn Michaels, as it's been implied. Um, several people have claimed it. Jim Connett has disputed a suggestion of his own. So basically, but Triple H claims that he told Vince McMahon, if Brett won't do business, we'll do business for Brett. It's very, very believable because McMahon was close to Michaels and Triple H, and Triple H could get in his ear. Uh, Vince Russo claims that he told Vince McMahon that the best thing to do and listened in on a private conversation between uh, Bret Hart and Vince McMahon. However, Jim Cornette, who loves Vince Russo, and I put inverted commas, uh, disputes that version, saying that Russo didn't know what a double cross was, and even if he did, he wasn't talented enough to put a program like this in effect. Cornette actually blames himself a little bit in jest, saying that he suggested to, you know, just throw somebody who Brett would lose to against him. And that's when, you know, that's when it happened. Uh, one of the things, too, is one of the reasons why Vince tried to do that was because uh, they didn't want Bret Hart WWF champion showing up on WCW TV with WWF's championship. Now remember, Hart would have six weeks to go, so it wasn't going to be the next night. So that that that's bang. Um, then some people, and I I I can't I would believe this because Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels seem like the old school e type of guys who could kind of do this. Remember, they worked everybody into thinking they hated each other as far back as 1996 when they didn't. But Brett and Sean staged it, knew what was going on, that way to turn Bret, uh, Bret Hart back into a good guy and give Vince McMahon a springboard to become the bad guy that he was going to be. Um, and I think that that's a good theory. I don't know if it's true or not. I, I, I sincerely doubt it was true, considering all the emotion involved. I think it was basically as it played out. But that would have been a, a hell of a way to do it. But who knows what happened? Nobody knows. The only people who know what exactly what happened are the people involved. Sean Waltman said, and I quote, I think the screw job was so compartmentalized that the guys that were in it don't know who else was involved. So, you know. You can take that for what you will. Um, I, 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 I kind of agree with that. I think there was something more. I mean, Bret Hart, like I said, was son of a legendary promoter. Vince McMahon was a father figure. It just, there's too many holes in it, to, you know. And, and how quickly Bret was accepted back into the fold. I mean, it's just, yeah, I don't know. Now, that would be a natural stopping point right there. However, I want to finish up 1997. And um, Bret has made the jump to WCW, Bret Hart. And WCW proceeds to... It doesn't shoot itself in the foot with a bullet, but it definitely, you know, shoots a couple of pellets at it. Um, their biggest show to date, Starcade 1997. Now, as I mentioned last week, WrestleMania was WWF's biggest show. Starcade was the NWA slash Jim Crockett Promotions slash WCW's biggest show. WCW versus NWO was kind of been going since 96. Sting changed his character from the surfer cool dude to be more like a dark, brooding version of the Crow. Um... Hogan had lost the belt a couple of times and won it back, but it was this night that was seen as the the natural end to the NWO versus WCW storyline. Uh, the angle was starting to go stale because it had been going on for over a year and a half with no payoff. And this was seen as, you know, you could see a mile away that the best thing for this to do was to have Sting beat Hogan, high-five everybody, NWO's done. Well, what happened was... Bret Hart was making his debut, right? And he wasn't wrestling. He was the guest referee in the semi-main event. 
And what was supposed to happen was that the referee was supposed to make a fast count, Brett was supposed to restart the match, and Sting was supposed to win. Now, unfortunately, the referee involved was Nick Patrick. Nick Patrick is a good referee, but he's also known for his slow counts. So if Patrick was doing a fast count, it'd be the equivalent of, say, Earl Hebner's regular three count. So, he's supposed to make a fast count. Bang. The ending confused everybody because Patrick made the normal count. Sting just laid there for the three. And um, Bret Hart claiming that he didn't want to see anybody else get screwed, even though nobody was. It just... It didn't make sense. And then on top of all that, they stripped Sting of the title 11 days later, only for him to win it back in a tournament in February. So they basically wasted the angle. It was a misuse of Sting. It was a misuse of Bret Hart. Uh, Hulk Hogan was said to be behind all of this, using his creative control. And, you know, this would have been the natural end to the NWO storyline. You could have splinted it off. You could have, you know, done the, the, the NWO breaks up and then feuds with each other. But... It just trudged on. It trudged on for the for the next year, year and a half, and split into different versions of itself, and Latino World Order, and uh, the B team, the A team, the Gold Standard, the Red and Black, the Black and White, Silver and Black. I mean, it just it 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 was just too much, and at that point, the fans had started to not care. But that is the end of our look today, because 1998 through 2000 is where the meat and potatoes of this is. There was a lot of things that went on in in the last 18 months, and now we're going to see what the payoff was for everything. We're going to see where WWF ended up, where WCW was going, where ECW was going, and we're going to have a lot of fun doing it. But in the meantime, I want to turn our attention to our new segment, where we have our trivia girl give us one or two things about the big gold belt in WCW. WCW was a strange organization. In their 12 and a half years of existence, it had no fewer than three world championships. Their historical association with the NWA led them to showcase the NWA World Heavyweight Championship, and later on, the WCW International Championship. But it's the WCW World Heavyweight Championship that holds a lot of good and bad history. This week, our crack trivia team will guide you through all of the world champions in the 1990s of world championship wrestling. Now, we're not going to look at each reign, however, we are going to look at each champion. We start with the greatest WCW champion of all time, Ric Flair, who is the first WCW champion. Flair would hold the belt seven times overall in the 90s, with two of those reigns being disputed. During this time, he would also unify the WCW Championship with the WCW International Championship and would hold the iconic big gold belt. Don't want to be like the Nature Flair left WCW for the WWF in mid-July and a match was set up between the number one contender Lex Luger and number two contender Barry Windham. Luger would win the first of his two world championships in a match that was not fondly remembered by the WCW fanbase. It's total package time. It's a new era, and you're looking at it right here. On Leap Day 1992, a WCW icon Sting would dethrone Luger, winning the first of his six reigns in the decade. 
he would lose the championship to Big Van Vader, who would hold the belt three times. Although a disputed reign of the British Bulldog is sandwiched in his second and third reigns. This is professional wrestling. You're one and oh. Let's get it on, brother. History was made in August of 1992, where Ron Simmons would become the first recognized African-American world champion with his one and only reign with the belt. Yes, I am the world heavyweight champion now. You were robbed. No, you were beat. After bouncing around some familiar faces, in 1994, the belt would end up in the hands of Hulk Hogan, who would hold the belt for six reigns and a combined 1177 days, or 3.2 years. During this time, he would work as Hulk and Hollywood Hogan to mix results. The name Hulk Hogan, the man Hulk Hogan, got bigger than the whole organization, brother. Hogan would drop the belt to the Giant in 1995 in the Giants debut match. The Giant would hold the belt twice, but his first had a little help from his Dungeon of Doom counterparts. My life is tonight. You will get yours, but you never got it before. Former WWF champion Randy Savage was the next man to hold the gold in 1996. For the first of his four reigns as champion, sadly were all unremarkable. You would have to wait two years before a new man held the title. By 1998, WCW would hand the undefeated Goldberg his first and only reign as WCW champion. Payback time! And I don't care who I have to destroy! WWF champion Kevin Nash would controversially defeat Goldberg later in the year for the first of his two reigns with the title in the 1990s. Sadly, his first reign would end with Hulk Hogan giving him the finger. He took out your knee. I'm going to break his back when the time is right. WCW would place the belt on homegrown star DDP for the first of his two reigns. You are gonna feel the best! Followed by one of the greatest of all time, Bret Hart winning the belt twice by the end of the decade. You're gonna be excellently executed by the Hitman. Like it or love it. Overall, 12 men had a combined 36 reigns as WCW champions in the 1990s. How does that compare to WWF? Let's find out next week. Okay, guys, we are almost done for this week. Uh, thank you, everybody, for taking the time listening to that uh, meaty segment right there. Also, special thanks to our trivia girl. Uh, you'll hear more from her next week and throughout the season. Yeah, I wanted to do something different with the trivia rather than just le- reading off a bunch of facts. So, last week I asked you, through our social media sites, who was your favorite wrestler of the 90s? I uh, got a couple of good responses. Uh, Mike said RVD. That's that's a great shout. Uh, ECW RVD was fantastic. Uh, Juvie and Tish went with uh, Kurt Henning, Mr. Perfect. Thanks, ma'am, for that. I appreciate it. Um, my mother listens to the podcast, everybody. Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, Chris and Carrie said Bret Hart. Liam said The Rock. And Voz said Macho Man Randy Savage. Thanks, everybody, who uh, 
who answered. Uh, that's really, really great. Uh, next week, we have a social media question that is related to professional wrestling, as next week's episode will be in there. How about that? Basically put, for all wrestling fans, which was the better organization at their peak? WWF or WWE? ECW or WCW? The answer will shock you. Not clickbait. Not clickbait at all. So, um, yeah. So now, um, I want to say something serious before we wrap up. Um, I've mentioned... I've mentioned a couple of times that uh, I've had depression. And I've had severe depression. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm working through it as best that I can. And over the last couple of weeks, even the, ni- even the night before recording, this is my second attempt at recording everything, it's been kicking my rear end to no no end um like really bad you know um miserableness and just yeah not good um but I'm, I'm bringing this up because i want people to to understand what's going on um i'm not suicidal but i'm very very down um but i'm talking about it because number one it helps me it helps me deal with it Number two, perhaps more importantly, I'm not a manly man, a traditional manly man, you know, who knew manly things, but I'm still a dude nonetheless. And we've been told to suck our feelings up and, you know, all that nonsense. And the last couple of months have been real, really hard. Real, really hard. And so it's been very, very difficult running through these 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 things and trying to function as normal um i've put a lot of strain on my family i've put a lot of strain on my friends my employees my employers i should say because i have no employees um any fans that i have listened to this you know um this is my second like i mentioned this is the second attempt to record in this uh i recorded last night and you just hear the anger dripping out of my voice and I, and I don't want that I want this to be fun um but you know if anybody needs to talk find someone to talk to you know um I'll put my information in the, in the description if you need to um also put in the description um, links to, 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 to websites and telephone numbers because I could be here all day listing them off. But guys, if you're not, it's okay to not be okay. It, it is. It's okay to not be okay because to know that you're not okay and to admit that you're not okay is the first step in getting help for it. Uh, I myself am getting as much help as I can and, you know, I'm, I'm keeping myself busy. And I have my good days and I have my bad days. And I'm just hoping that I have more uh, good days than bad days in the future. So, like I said, if anybody needs to talk about anything, I'm here. I might need to talk to you guys. But it is okay to not be okay. And, you know, particularly for the guys listening to this. um, You know, I I know uh, women suffer from depression as much as the guys and and you know believe me it's horrible but at the same time we don't get as much help with it does that make sense um i just 
just that's 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 just the nature of the beast you know it's not to be sexist it's not to be whatever it's just men's oppression is usually swept under the rug under the guise of men up and you know i said before i want to take that phrase back men up means being human not being a man being human and one of the things about being human is to admit when there's something wrong so that's where i'm at right now it sounds down i know but i also have a lot of good things going on in life too you know i have my work with uh, the bands that i've been working with this podcast um my kids are about to uh, graduate school for the year all six of them have done as hard as they can under really really bad circumstances this year and you know everything is going to be fantastic it's just right now it doesn't seem that way but it will be so guys without wanting to be down let's do something fun if you want to be if you want to follow us on our social media sites look up look us up, look up because maybe pod on twitter facebook and tumblr so we look at next week's show and next week's show is going to be a doozy we're going to have more trivia from the trivia girl because why not and also we're going to look at the end of the decade which was kind of where wrestling was cool again so we had the uncool part the making it cool ish again to the bit where it finally became absolutely stellar so in the meantime have fun have a great weekend have a great week have a great life whatever just do good you know don't eat greasy food unless you really love greasy food like i do and have a great week ahead see you later guys